Good morning, church. I want to ask you a couple of questions as we get into our text today, just to bring you into this world a bit. So the first one is this. What are your easiest relationships? As you're pondering that, hopefully you have some easy ones. What are your hardest ones? Now imagine whatever your relationships are, imagine those relationships without any grace in them at all. No grace between your family members and no grace between you and the people you work with. Cruelty where you need kindness and insults where you need to be understood. I think if you're doing this with me this morning, you'll realize that grace matters in our relationships and particularly in our hardest ones. Grace is essential. A definition for the way this word is used throughout scriptures is found in Strong's Concordance, which says, uh, grace is divine influence upon the heart that kindles us to the exercise of Christian virtues. Or in other words, grace is God causing us to act like Jesus, even towards people who we wouldn't naturally want to, even towards people that hate us, or sometimes, if we're honest, we hate. This grace is not a human quality. I'm sure a lot of you know how to be nice. We just shook hands and we were nice for a moment. But grace goes beyond nice because nice is no match for a hard relationship. The grace that God gives us is what gets us through. Grace like that gives meaning to our pain and transforms our suffering into powerful and influential testimony about the presence of Jesus in our lives. Can you do anything to qualify for grace like this? I'm not going on until you answer. No. Okay, I just needed to make sure you were here. But do you need grace like that? Yes. We all do because... Whether you've thought about it or not, we all know what it's like to be in a hard relationship. We know that feeling, and we understand that it's our hard relationships where sin abounds. And so that's where we need grace. That's where grace matters the most. The Bible says where sin has increased, grace abounds. As believers committed to Christ, your hardest relationships will be with people who oppose your faith in situations you can't just walk away from. Their actions hurt you more than you let on, and their sin is increased towards you, and you wonder if you can take it any longer without giving in to sin yourself. I want to encourage you today that God knows your situation, and he has grace for you. We've been studying 1 Peter together. And we began this study, we saw that Peter prayed that grace would be multiplied to his readers and multiplied to the church, which means he wants grace to be multiplied to us. His letter has already taught us some of the things we've been singing about this morning, that we have this new identity in Christ. And with that new identity becomes a new way of acting in the world. We have new behavior in Christ so that we don't behave the way we used to when we didn't have him. That's what it means to be holy. And by grace, we can bring that holiness into relationships that hurt us. 
So today I'll bring you to a section in this letter that brings three hard relationships uh, forward uh, that those people could relate to and I think we can still relate to today. Grace matters the most in these kind of relationships because grace from God helps believers endure suffering and find ministry in their pain. But as we read, we need to make no mistake that they had it much worse than we do when it comes to suffering and pain. Our culture doesn't legally support the kind of oppression that was possible in their day, but we can identify with how it felt to be in their hard relationships and recognize that we know these feelings and realize that, mercifully, we don't experience it the same way. So I'm hoping you'll identify with three situations we'll look at in the scriptures today, and and I want to set you up by having you think about them so that even if you don't see yourself in exactly the description, you'll understand what they're going through. So perhaps you'll identify with this first situation. Grace matters most when you are mistreated and suffering repeatedly. The first relationship Peter has us consider is a believing slave under a cruel master. Do you think that's an easy or a hard relationship? Hard. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. Um, This is a situation where believers were, were facing oppression and violence and degradation. Slavery was systematic and it was inescapable for some people. It was not like any legal job that we have today. So it's not like you at work, even if you think your boss is horrible. Situations like this occur illegally in the black market of human trafficking, in the exploitation of undocumented workers with minors and seniors and vulnerable dependents behind the closed doors of institutional care and in other hidden sectors of our society. In Peter's day, the oppression was visible, but for us it's under the radar where cruel people have control over those who can't just walk away. So maybe you know something about that. Or maybe you can identify with this other situation we'll see. Grace matters most when you are misunderstood and valued insignificantly. The second relationship that Peter describes is between, uh, is where a woman is married to a disobedient, morally corrupt husband. They were married to men who would reject their wives' faithful counsel and make shady deals and unwise decisions that affected their homes. They were men who also represented a culture that was woefully patriarchal and overly concerned with a woman's appearance while discrediting her intellectual value. Any woman who wasn't able to or wasn't interested in keeping up with the fashion trends may have been misunderstood as being irrelevant. Let me ask you women, do you think this was easy or hard? It's hard. Men, what do you think? Do you think that would be easy or hard? It's hard. It's hard. It's hard to be intimately connected and unappreciated at the same time. It's hard to be misunderstood because people in control are more concerned about how you look than about what you think. So perhaps you can identify with that. And maybe you'll also be able to identify with this third situation. Grace matters most when you are misaligned, yet sacrificing unreservedly. The last relationships that get mentioned in the passage we'll be looking at are between believing husbands with their unsympathetic and unsupportive wives. Is this easy or hard? Let me hear you. It's hard. You know it's hard. In such a relationship, their values are misaligned. Put yourself in in that kind of person's shoes. 
If your wife, in a culture where everybody already worships idols, and you're the new Christian, if your wife wants to continue worshiping idols, and you want to worship Christ, it's a problem. It's hard because no one in that culture expected you to put up with that situation. It's hard because you're heartbroken and you're unhappy. And you're expected to make her follow your religion or send her away without a second thought. But the believing husband isn't oppressed. It's not like the other two situations. He's obligated. And he knows before God he has a lifelong obligation. And so he stays and gives himself fully to the care and expense of his marriage without knowing if they'll ever be on the same page spiritually. So all of these situations have parallels in our lives. And even though we might not know the particulars of what they were going through, we know, we understand, we get how it feels to be going through these hard situations. So when Peter writes to encourage them, he writes to encourage us and instruct us and inspire us to receive and give grace in our hardest relationships as well. Let me ask you, do you have hard relationships? Yes. Do you believe uh, that you need grace for those relationships? Do you believe grace will come? Good. Now let me ask you this one, because this is the application point. Do you act like grace is going to come? So, mumble, mumble, rumble, rumble. Hmm, yes, yes, hmm. Well, you know, it's, it's tough to be, I've asked you to think about some pretty difficult circumstances, and I, and I, I want us to make sure we're, we're doing that, but right about now we might need to kind of step back and, and think about what it means to act like grace is going to come. So uh, let me give you this illustration that pulls it back from some of those difficult relationships. This morning, um, perhaps you got up, as many people do, and you went to the shower, right? And you went to the shower, and if it's like your house, um, you went and you, and you were expecting some nice, warm, soothing water to come, and for some reason, someone else is up in the house, they start brushing their teeth, and instantly, the water goes cold. And you're assaulted now, assaulted by shards of ice, by, by icy water that's hitting your body, and, and, you, and you're, you're enduring the pain. Now, do you get out of the shower? No, you don't get out. You wait. You endure because you know that mercifully, graciously, warm, soothing, comforting water is on the way. You endure because you know what's coming. And that's how we are to approach these hard relationships. We are to act like people who know that grace will come. And as we look deeper into this passage, we'll find out how we need to cooperate with God when we suffer from being mistreated, misunderstood, or where we're misaligned. So with that, I want to take us into the text, because I hope you're prepared for that. We come to a passage that starts off with words that we know are, are going to be difficult. And so I wanted to prepare you so that we could get this word into our heads and then have it start working on our hearts. So here are those difficult words. Servants, which is really slaves. We're at uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. Servants, slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect. Now, how hard is this? The word master, there's a couple different ways you could refer to someone with that title. You could call them Lord like people called them Lord Jesus. Or you could call them this other word, which is translated here, master. But if you look behind it, it's the word that we would say is despot. That sounds a little bit more severe. This is someone who can harm you. 
And so it says, slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and you suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Well, that's the passage we want to get into today. And it's, it's not easy, but it's God's word for us, and we want to be encouraged. And Peter's teaching us that grace is going to come. Grace is going to come. You want to remember this in just a little phrase, say, grace going to come. You didn't say it the way I want you to say it. You said it like wimpy people. I want you to say this like you're from the South and you're passing on knowledge that you've learned through generations of Christians. Grace going to come. Right, so in your difficult situations, those situations you've been thinking about today, we need to understand that Peter is teaching us how grace is going to come to our situations and what's going to bring the most grace into those relationships. We're going to look at three, three ways that they, that comes. So first this, grace comes most when you choose conduct that is to your credit. Grace comes most when you choose conduct that's to your credit. So what I want to do, having read the passage, is just remind you of some things we've seen in this long passage that will show us how Peter is expecting us to act as holy people, connected and, and saved by Christ. In our hardest relationships, we cooperate with God's grace most when we, are, when we subject ourselves to the other person and do good with respectful and pure conduct. It's how we, as Christians, can draw people who hurt us towards the truth of the gospel, without a word of argument or contempt. And this is what Peter says is gracious in the sight of God. Now, if you want a a verse that kind of encapsulates this whole idea, it's the verse that inspired the title of this message, that grace matters most. It's verse 19 in chapter 2. 
For this is a gracious thing. This is a grace. This is the kind of thing where that miracles come from. This is the kind of thing that, that birthed the church. This is grace. This is that same word. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while, while suffering unjustly. So if you see that, you might be wondering, how can I do good to someone who doesn't deserve it from me? How do I submit where I'm constantly mistreated and misunderstood and where we are misaligned? What does this mean actually for me? So Peter explains submission, and he means this, that despite the suffering we're facing, you speak and you act in ways that bring grace into that person's life. Because when someone knows they don't qualify for grace, how you behave toward them in your gracious way can be a powerful testimony about God's work in your life and the potential for him to work in theirs. Your ministry makes an accommodation for them to experience grace. So let me illustrate that with this story. It's said that during the Second World War, some soldiers serving in France wanted to bury a friend and a fellow soldier who had been killed. Being in a foreign country, they wanted to ensure their fallen comrade had a proper burial. They found a well-kept cemetery with a low stone wall around it, a picturesque little Catholic church, and a peaceful outlook. This was just the place to bury their friend, but when they approached the priest, he answered that unless their friend was a baptized Catholic, he could not be buried inside the cemetery. He wasn't. So sensing the soldier's disappointment, the priest showed them a spot outside the walls where they could bury their friend. Reluctantly, they did so. The next day, the soldiers returned to pay their final respects to their fallen friend, but they could not find the grave. Surely we can't be mistaken. It was right here, they said. Confused, they approached the priest who took them to a spot inside the cemetery walls. Last night, I couldn't sleep, said the priest. I was troubled that your friend had to be buried outside the cemetery walls, so I got up and I moved the fence. When grace matters most, you can move the fence and bring people closer to God's grace. Grace comes most when you choose to act in cooperation with the mercy God wants to offer. So Peter's letter is helping us remember how to act like grace going to come. You want to practice it. You want to practice it. Let's practice it. Grace going to come. You're getting better. It's still, well, it's not there at all, really. But I like it. Grace is going to come. And that's how we want to act. So think about this word from Peter next. Grace comes most when you clarify the appeal of your new character. You're not yourself anymore in these relationships. You are someone who is connected to Christ. Now, as we get into this passage, this is the part that says, likewise, wives. And right there, I paused months ago thinking, do I really want to go into this? Because I'm nervous. This situation is not an easy one. And it's not just talking about a woman who might be suffering, but it's also talking about what a woman might choose to wear in public. And there's lots of ways this can be confusing. And as a pastor here, I do not want to give anybody a reason to think that we're not trying to be sensitive to these situations. And I'm afraid that I might say something or, or miss or, or, or not say something that, that causes someone here to feel like we're being insensitive or we don't understand how difficult this can be. So I ask for your grace as we go into this. But Peter leads us here, so I'm, I'm going there. 
And, and I want you to understand, first of all, that, this, that you might look at a passage like this and think it's a prohibition against dressing nicely, and it's not. And, and if you're wondering, hey, what's, what's the tie about all today? I just want to underscore that. We can wear ties. We can get dressed up. It's okay, even though this passage says um, things about clothing. So it's, it's not downplaying getting dressed up. So don't go home and burn your wardrobe. Peter is picking up the wisdom from Proverbs 31, verse 30, that says this, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. So it's okay to wear nice clothes, but don't be foolish about fashion because character is far more influential. Okay, this is a passage about influence. And while we're clarifying what could go wrong as we study this passage, um, this passage does not give men permission to abuse their wives or ask women to, t- to allow themselves to be taken for granted. We know this because of verse three, or chapter 3, verse 7. And as Christian men, we are called to live with our wives, it says, in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel and recognize their significance and value as heirs with us of the grace of life. So if you're a married man and you treat your wife with honor, regardless of what she believes and regardless of whether or not she's supportive of you, you are demonstrating your new character in Christ. You're showing what matters most to you is that you're right with God. And this makes it clear that what kind of man God's grace has made you. You have become the kind of man who is able to pray with a clear conscience, knowing that your actions towards your wife are full of grace. So like I said, this is not about men being jerks and women just accepting it. This is about being tempted to find influence in a shallow way. Any person in a hard relationship where they are constantly undervalued and ignored may be tempted to seek significance through fashion or in this shallow way. So God's grace is helping us understand that believers become influential through the Spirit, through God's work in their hearts, without relying on external attractiveness for persuasion. That's why Peter can write, do not let your adorning, your, your world, your, your, your focus be on the external, but let it be the hidden person of the heart, which in God's sight is very precious. And when he said that, in verse 3 of chapter 3, He talks about braiding of hair and putting on gold jewelry and the clothing you wear. And as we talk about hairstyles, I thought we could just pause and and see what was a little bit of the fashion at that time. So here are three styles for women. Um, The titulus, the the bun kind of thing, the, the broom head, I guess. The Severin, which looks like a mop on, 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 yeah, I don't know what that is. And then the last one, which was the, the one that you really wanted to get, um, the Flavian. I don't know how they said it, but this is what it was, and this was the one that you really desire. It's your, probably your real hair. I'm way out of my element here, right, because we're talking about hair and women at the same time. Um, it's your real hair, and then they would take hair from other people and attach it to your head and mount it up in these curls, with, and they'd stick it there with glue or weave it in somehow, and you would walk around in public like that 
thinking I look good. It reminds me of the 80s when I was a teenager and people used to put um, uh, hairspray in their bangs and wear them like 10 feet off the top of their head. It's crazy. But this was the fashion. And this is how people thought they could gain influence. And I needed to show you that because it came up in my research and it gave me a chance to smile. But here's the thing. If it's hairstyles and expensive jewelry and fine clothes, they all have their place in a culture. But hear this. If your beauty comes with a price tag, if you've got to buy it, it's not based in God's grace. So, you know, that was then, but what about now? Let's, let's pause again and see how Christians are still confused by this. You're going to see that there's this website uh, on Instagram called Preachers and Sneakers. And this, is, this guy is like a comical uh, cultural watchdog on this same idea. Let me set this up for you. So these are, these are Christian men at a conference. Maybe it's a church. They're, they're talking. And each of these guys, I'm sure, in their own way, want to be influential. They want to be noticed and, and considered significant. Otherwise, they wouldn't be wearing socks like that guy's wearing right there. That, those are ridiculous. But, um, you know, but this guy's looking at their shoes. There's this phenomenon going on with shoes. How, what, what kind of shoes are you wearing? So the first two guys, the guy with the microphone and the guy in the blue shirt, they're okay. They've only paid about $100 possibly for their shoes. But this last guy with his back to us, they took a picture of his shoes, zoomed in and realized there are these ones on the bottom. And those shoes traded on some website for $2,400. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. Um, and so the, the, the reminder is, why, why are they doing this? Well, shoes carry some influence in our society. And pastors are even affected by this. And the point of this website is to, is to kind of check us against this thing. We have a Savior who we, we know, it's written about him, there was nothing to draw us to him. He had no stately form that we should be drawn to him. He was a carpenter. That's how he appeared in society. He walked around in sandals that were dirty. And he just asked the question, how far away from that is this? So we still get confused on this. This doesn't have to be just a woman thing. I'm very happy this morning to let you know that I got my shoes from Payless. <laughs> so grace doesn't come from that. If you have to get it with a high price tag, it's, that beauty is not from grace. Grace comes when you have instead the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Grace comes from your heart, in your, into your heart relationships when you make it clear that your confidence doesn't come from your clothing or your makeup or your hair or your, your shoes. It comes from being right with God so that you do not fear anything that is frightening or as John Piper has said, that you are fearless when everybody else is worrying. Your significance and relevance come from God so you don't rely on externals to show your importance. Now, I think we get that, but the part that's a little bit harder to understand is why does he talk about Sarah here? Peter mentions a woman named Sarah, and if you know the scriptures, you know that Sarah had a marriage to a man named Abraham. It's that Abraham had many sons, sir, had many sons, sir, had father Abraham. Abraham, that guy, okay? And, and they were married, and it was not an easy marriage. It was a hard relationship because Abraham was a bit shady at times. Abraham told Sarah to deny that they were married and say that she was his sister, which was true, which is also awkward for us, but we're not going there. Um, And then Abraham accepted money from more powerful men who wanted Sarah for their harem just because she was really attractive. So Sarah's exceptional beauty made her a commodity. And Abraham made wealth from her beauty and body. Now that sounds tough. It's a really hard situation. 
Now, Sarah was also in her youth a bit of a player, and we know that she wasn't able to have children, but she wanted a child to help secure her, her relationship and her status and her significance with her husband. So she made this foolish play to increase her significance and had her husband impregnate one of her servants. And she was going to pretend like the child that they had was hers. So you can imagine, this is a relationship with a lot of drama. This is a hard relationship. It's not easy. And they struggled. I'm sure they struggled. The Bible doesn't give us the details, but the Bible can skip over so much of the nuances. But we know this was difficult. And they struggled in their marriage until God's grace came to them in their situation in their later years. And Sarah was given this opportunity to submit to her husband and with just a little bit of faith that with God's help, together they would naturally be able to conceive a child. And she would finally become a mother. So she submits to Abraham and she respects him as her husband and God blesses them with a child. And Peter remembers her and says she was one of the holy women who hoped in God because she submitted to her husband, and it's not because she was famously attractive. So when Peter says in this passage, you are Sarah's children, he's talking to you women and encouraging you to see that there is beauty in doing good and cooperating with your husband so that he may experience God's grace with you and through you. And to be more specific to both the case of a woman in a marriage and a man in a marriage like that, grace matters most in marriages where misunderstandings and misalignment has led to desperate but shallow attempts to recover your significance. Men, I want to encourage you, you will never influence your wife's heart by flexing your authority or demanding your rights as a husband. You won't become more appealing to her by abandoning the marriage either. And women, you will never influence your husband's heart by going to the salon or the tailor or the jeweler or the gym to appear more significant in his eyes. There's not a lot of grace in these things. But grace comes most when you decide to work on your character before the Lord. Amen? Amen. So grace comes comes to people in these hard relationships. And we need grace like that. We have these hard relationships. We know we need it. And, and, and whether you've been tracking along with, with those two situations or not, this last idea is the one that brings all the grace to our relationships. Grace comes most when you conform yourself to the hope of Jesus' example. Peter actually covered this point earlier, but I wanted to finish here. The gracious power behind all of our submission and our ability to do good to people, we have a hard relationship, comes from and through and because of Jesus Christ. We can't sustain any true holiness in a relationship that hurts us without being spiritually connected to God by the grace of Jesus Christ. It's just impossible. We will blow that up every time. So this is why Peter writes earlier in the passage, We were called to this. We're called away from what we are into this new idea. So I want to test you on what that idea is. Pop quiz, two answers, A or B. You choose, call it what you think the right answer is. Here they come. First, A, the church is called to suffer, or B, the church is called to experience grace in God's sight. B. Yeah, it's B. We're called to experience and share grace in Jesus' name through the amazing and undeserved blessing of God that only comes when we have put our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. Do you understand that when Jesus 
suffered on the cross, he was acting graciously toward you. If you're born again, you're a recipient of God's grace. And not only are you a recipient of that, you're called to be an agent of that grace. Grace comes most when you realize this, that your willingness to suffer can be used by the Holy Spirit to inspire a faithful response to God in the heart of someone who doesn't even believe. That's what was happening on the cross. People could look up in Jesus and realize, I might need to change. And people can look at you and your suffering and say, I might need to change. I might be the one in wrong here. I might need to get my life in line with God the way this person has their life in line with God. Your suffering, your focus, can be an influence on the people who are causing you to suffer. So where does this idea come from? Peter says it's right from Jesus. He wrote this, Jesus suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might, what, see it in the text, it's in verse 21 of chapter 2. For this you have been called because Christ Jesus also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. I love what one commentator kind of draw, drew out here for me to think about was that Peter followed behind Jesus at the crucifixion, scared, hanging back, afraid to suffer. He wasn't able to go step with, by step with Jesus in that situation. And now he writes to the church, you were called that you might follow Jesus' example and follow in his steps. When Jesus faced suffering, he did not revile, he did not threaten, he entrusted himself to God who just, judges justly. That means he focused beyond the injustice of his crucifixion and into his relationship with God who had a plan for his pain. Sometimes I think when we're hurting, we, we think our, our pain is senseless. We think it has, has nothing to do with our Christian life. We forget that God is this author of everything that happens about us. And we're even better off than Job in the Old Testament who didn't understand why he was suffering. But we understand what we can see here is that there can be a plan for our pain, that God can use it, and there can be ministry in the midst of our misery. So Peter's able to write about Jesus by his wounds, by the beatings, by the stripes, we are healed. That's a profound statement. It encourages us. The amazing grace that God offers doesn't just get us through. It incorporates our suffering into the redemption of others. Grace comes when it matters most, and grace mattered the most when Jesus hung on the cross for our sins. And I hope that you've trusted in that for your salvation today. Because it's by grace that we are saved, forgiven because Jesus suffered for our benefit. It's by grace that we've been set free from sin and called into a life where we receive grace. Every day. It's by grace that we endure sorrows while we suffer unjustly. 
And it's by grace that our obedience in hard relationships, where we have to choose to do the right thing even though we're being hurt, it's by grace that our obedience inspires faith in Jesus among people that don't even believe him yet. Grace comes to us through Jesus. That's where it comes from. So if you're in a relationship where grace matters most, you need to understand it's not supposed to come from you through being nice. It comes from Jesus. He is our cornerstone of the life that we build around grace. When the world puts your faith to the ultimate test of oppression, of mistreatment, of misunderstanding, of misalignment, and you want to crumble, grace matters most. As the worship team prepares to lead us, I just want to give you a moment, this moment, to pray. I want you to close your eyes. I want you to focus again on on your relationships and those difficult ones where you know grace matters most. I want you to hear that grace is going to come. I want you to understand how it comes. I want you to pray about these things. And as you pray, thank God for his grace and ask him for more.